Welcome to this week's episode of My Mysterious Bible Podcast, the podcast that focuses on the mysterious and downright weird parts of the Bible. My name is Michael Norton and I will be your host. Last week we looked at the warnings in Jude and 2 Peter about speaking out against angels, with the primary example being that of the archangel Michael refusing to speak a word against the devil as they contended over the body of Moses. We must approach powers and principalities very much differently than we do demons, because they are not the same thing at all. I will go into greater detail on this subject soon. For now, I am simply going to say that the belief of the ancient Israelites was that demons were the disembodied spirits of the giants found in the Old Testament. So, for example, when uh, David killed Goliath, his spirit would have roamed as a demon. Many of the fallen angels would have been members of the Divine Council, who are berated by God in Psalm 82 for leading humanity astray instead of leading them back to God. These entities would go on to become known by many names such as princes, powers, principalities, and dominions, watchers, and gods. Let's look at Psalm 82, beginning with verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Many of you have probably heard that this psalm is about human men, due to the way Jesus uses it in John 10. I can't cover that topic in detail in this podcast. So if you want to know more, then Google this podcast that I'm going to reference. The Naked Bible Podcast, Episode 109, John 10, Gods or Men where Dr. Michael S. Heiser covers the topic thoroughly, and he does a much better job than I could. Now that we have laid a bit of a foundation, the main idea this week is that it is a given that we can bind and cast out demons. Jesus gave us that authority in the Great Commission, given in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not, believe, does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. But what can we do when dealing with these entities who are referred to as sons of God? princes, powers and principalities, glorious ones, etc. What works on demons does not work on them. Luckily for us, Jesus gave us an example of how to resist and defeat these types of threats when dealing with the devil himself. Let's look to Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse one, in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I'm going to read the description of this wilderness from the Lexham Geographic Commentary on the Gospels. Lying east of the watershed of the Judean hills, under the rain shadow, only sparse desert vegetation grows. The rare spring trickling out of the base of a steep ravine provides the only source of water. A stark and awe-inspiring place, the seemingly endless undulating chalk hills overwhelm the viewer with both strange beauty and hostility as they tumble precipitously eastward into the Rift Valley. Were it not for the Jericho Road, Jerusalem's only direct eastern access, few would venture here. In summer, the pale hills glare under a cloudless sky, and even shepherds find the region inhospitable. Reminiscent of Jeremiah 32.6, it is a land that no one passes through, where no one lives. This region became a local repository for Israelite memories of their formative years prior to entering the Promised Land, as well as a rich cultural reservoir of creation imagery associated with unlivable regions such as this. Similar to water, the unformed and unlivable nature of the wilderness may evoke ideas of chaos and thus pre-creation. It is unordered matter, unsuitable for life, perhaps even opposed to it. As such, wilderness regions are conceivably God-forsaken and sometimes associated with the underworld or evil spirits. However, that same chaos also represents potential as exhibited in Genesis 1. It awaits only the Creator's word to give it a name, a form, and a purpose. This same creative potential is then symbolically present for those who pass through the wilderness. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous instances in which a figure is tested and honed in difficult circumstances, often literally in the wilderness, before returning to his community with renewed power and purpose to do God's work. Moses' wilderness exile preceded his calling and ministry. Israel was set apart through the covenant at Mount Sinai, yet subsequently led through the wilderness in preparation for nationhood. David, anointed as king in his youth, endured a protracted time hiding from Saul in the wilderness before taking the throne. Finally, John the Baptist, like Elijah before him, became a renowned prophet of God in the wilderness itself, both ministries expanding exponentially from that unlikely beginning. All these figures draw life from seeming death, power 
from obscurity and emerge with a newfound strength and clarity of purpose, prepared for their new public role. Jesus also participates in this rich heritage. End quote. For decades, my imagination envisioned different types of wildernesses that I have personally experienced. Brush country, forest, a jungle. All of them were full of trees and vegetation and wildlife. All of them were wrong. I never thought of a nearly lifeless barren desert. This is an example of me wrongly imposing my own context and life experience upon the Bible. The question remains, though, how do we battle these powers and principalities? In the account of the wilderness temptation, we see Jesus use the Word of God as his weapon. We will turn to Ephesians 6 to see how to do this properly ourselves. Starting at verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The devil and the cosmic powers mentioned must be handled the way Jesus handled the, handled the devil in the wilderness. You have to know your Bible in context, and the devil will certainly try to sway you into compromising it. In verse 17, we see that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Jesus used this weapon during the wilderness temptation to defeat the devil. He didn't bind him or cast him out. He didn't insult the devil or mock him. He used scripture with power, faith, and authority. The devil used scripture too in verse 10. He had twisted it just as he had twisted the words of God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is an Eve. He will not fall for what is literally the oldest trick in the book. Let's put that another way. The word of God in context is one of the most powerful weapons we have in our arsenal against the powers and principalities. The Bible out of context is dangerous. The devil tried to use the word of God this way, twisting it in an attempt to manip manipulate Jesus. Jesus won this battle by quoting the Bible back to the devil in context until he fled from him. The Bible is a loaded weapon. In context, it is a weapon against the powers of darkness. Out of context, as the devil used it, it is a weapon that can do great damage to us. It makes me think back to the movie, The Book of Eli where Gary Oldman's character, Carnegie, is desperately seeking a copy of the Bible with the intent of using it to bend people to his will in a post-apocalyptic world. This brings him into conflict with Denzel Washington's character, Eli, who is attempting to secretly get a copy of the Bible to the West. This is a dialogue of a scene that occurs after Eli, who seems to be protected by God, escapes the town that Carnegie is the warlord of, with his copy of the Bible. He is protecting. 
Foul words will be replaced with bleeping. Carnegie speaking. Put a crew together. We're going after him. His chief thug speaking back. For a bleeping book? Carnegie. It's not a bleeping book. It's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the hearts and minds of the weak and desperate. It will give us control over them. People will come from all over. They will do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. It has happened before and it will happen again. All we need is that book. That is pure fiction, of course. But Jonestown, the Branch Davidians, and the Heaven's Gate cult were all very real and misused the Bible to influence and control their members. All of these cults ended in the death of many of their members, either by suicide or, in the case of the Branch Davidians, armed conflict with the government. This is how dangerous it is to not hold tightly to the Bible in its own context. The devil is a master of twisting the truth into dangerous misinformation. I'm going to hammer home this point from last week just a bit more. Jesus didn't rebuke the devil. He didn't call him names. He did not mock him or do any of the other misguided things we see that have in some of our modern churches. He relied upon the whole armor of God from Ephesians. He especially displayed the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith to defeat the devil. Let's take a bit of time to examine the three temptations. Bear in mind that these 40 days in the wilderness with Satan are analogous to the 40 years the Israelites spent in the wilderness. In verse 3, the devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. From the Bible Knowledge Commentary, I quote, God led them into the desert where they had no alternative but to trust him or to murmur against him. In the desert, they could not produce their own food, but had to depend on God for food and thus their very lives. When Moses reminded them that they did not live on bread alone, he meant that even their food was decreed by the word of God. They had manna because God came because it came by God's command. It was therefore ultimately not bread that kept him alive, but his word. Bread alone, that is, bread acquired independently of his word, could not keep them alive. This is why Jesus refused Satan's temptation to turn stones into bread when he was in the wilderness. Jesus knew that God had not decreed those stones for his food, and also that his father would provide food apart from the son's working of a miracle at the suggestion of Satan. End quote. I think that nicely sums up what is going on in this account. Again quoting from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. In verse 5, we get the second temptation Luke recorded was an appeal to Jesus to be in control of all the kingdoms of the world. The condition was that Jesus must worship the devil. The Greek in this verse literally says to bow down to, to prostrate yourself before, or to bend the knee to, kind of Game of Thrones style. Though this would have given Jesus world rulership, he would have been depending on Satan, rather on God the Father, and his plan. Jesus again referred to Moses to combat a temptation. In that passage, Deuteronomy 6.13, 
Moses warned the people about their attitude when they finally were going to get into the land and achieve some glory and dominion. The temptation for them would be to praise themselves and forget to worship God. Jesus, by quoting the verse, showed that he would not make that mistake. He would give God the credit and not take it for himself. He would not fail as Israel had failed. The third temptation, once again from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. The devil tried to get Jesus to change the timing and structure of his ministry. Jesus knew he must go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He knew that he was a suffering servant. The devil challenged Jesus to throw himself off the highest point of the temple. This was perhaps at the southeastern corner of the wall overlooking the deep Kidron Valley below. Satan meant that the nation, seeing Jesus' miraculous protection from such a jump, would immediately accept him. The devil even quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, to show that the Messiah would be kept safe from harm. However, Jesus was aware of the implication. To receive the acceptance of the people without going to the cross would be to question whether God was really in the plan at all. That was exactly the situation Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 6.16, which Jesus quoted. Moses referred back to a time when the people wondered whether God was really with them, Exodus 17.7. But Jesus was confident of the fact that God was with him and that the Father's plan and timing were perfect. So Jesus would not fall for Satan's temptation. Lastly, Satan's departure from Jesus. The devil departed not permanently, but only into a latter, more opportune time. Winning the battle against the devil today does not mean we've won the war. He will be back. To quote, to quote from Dr. Michael S. Heiser's fiction novel, The Facade, to a timeless being, time means nothing, but timing is everything. The devil and his forces are playing a long game. Don't become complacent just because they are laying low and plotting. To sum up the key point of this week, we cannot battle fallen angelic beings the way we would demons. These angelic beings are of a higher order. In a future episode, we will cover the topic of my book, The Divine Council Worldview, The Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, A Devotional Introduction, to see exactly who these powers and principalities are and how the Great Commission is a key to spiritual warfare against them. But for now, we must put on the whole armor of God, found in Ephesians 6. It is no accident that the whole armor of God is listed as the way to war and defeat the powers and principalities. On a personal note, one of my pet peeves is that the language in Ephesians clearly is using the armor of a Roman soldier for the analogy, not a medieval knight, which wouldn't exist until about 1500 years after the time of Jesus but most of the art and illustrations on the subject depict the latter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of My Mysterious Bible. Please rate us on whichever service you are using to listen. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at mymysteriousbible at gmail.com and join the My Mysterious Bible Facebook group. That concludes this week's episode. Have a blessed week.